Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdad. I'm Greta Johnson. It is another Friday in the year 2021, and we have a heck of a show for you today. We are going to hear from Anna Malika Tubbs, author of The Three Mothers, about the mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., James Baldwin, and Malcolm X. Then we'll hear from Sherry Turkle about her new memoir, The Empathy Diaries. But first, it's our panel about the week that was. With us today, we have best-selling fantasy author Lee Bardugo, Her newest book is the second in the King of Scars series, and it comes out later this month. And the Netflix adaptation of her YA book, Shadow and Bone, comes out in April. Lee, hello. Hello. Happy to be here. Yay. Thank you. And we also have Emily Grassley, executive producer and host of PBS's Prehistoric Road Trip and creator of the YouTube series The Brain Scoop. Emily, hello. Hi. I'm delighted to be here. Oh my gosh, we are delighted to have you. Okay, so as we do many weeks, I think we got to start with COVID. Um, The news this week is that we are inching closer to the one-year anniversary of the beginning of shutdowns here in the United States. Also this week, President Biden said there would be enough vaccines for everyone who wants one by the end of May. Meanwhile, Texas and Mississippi have decided COVID isn't a thing anymore. They're giving up on mask mandates and letting everything just return to normal. Uh, So there are lots of layers this week. I'm curious where you two are falling in the let's get back to normal life spectrum. Lee, let's start with you. I mean, my feeling right now is just like I'm shaking my fist at Texas and Mississippi. Like you screw this up for us. Yeah. Like I had just begun to feel the first inklings of hope. Mm. And then reading the news yesterday, I sort of went into a, a patented COVID spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look, I just wanted to be done, but I also don't, we've had so many, especially in Los Angeles and California, we've had so many false starts and stops that I, I just get it done, you know, double tap, you know, like yeah. you don't, it, the zombie is not yet dead. You don't turn your back on it. Like I, I feel very frustrated. I bet. What do you think, Emily? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that has been sort of the pace of the last year, which is a little bit of hope that has been dashed by another thing. But, you know, mm-hmm. with the change of the season, at least for us here in Chicago and Illinois, so much of that seasonal depression has just been an additional heavy weight. And so I'm optimistic, yeah. you know, with vaccines and, and controlling what you can control, you know, about your own personal movements is, is still mm-hmm. my gold standard. But yeah, I will still be wearing my mask for a long time cautious optimism. So something else I was curious to ask you two about is a recent New York Times op-ed that's kind of about cancel culture. In it, Liat Kaplan said she was the teenage girl behind a super popular Tumblr that was called Your Fave is Problematic. And it was kind of an early example of what a lot of people refer to as, you know, like the mob-like aspects of cancel culture that we see today. 
I was curious what struck y'all about this story. And I don't know, even if you read the blog in the first place, Emily, let's start with you. What do you think? Oh, I was a subscriber to that blog. It was really popular at a time when I was also on Tumblr. And so uh, the feed crossed my timeline a lot. And as somebody mm-hmm. who was also you know, starting to rise in awareness in the public eye, I found it kind of terrifying. Um, just because, you know, you're young, I grew up on the internet, I technically have receipts going back to when I was 13 online. And the terrifying (laughs) idea of like, what would happen if something that I said, you know, in my naivety, uh, as a product of public education in a very white part of South Dakota, you know, like, you don't know what you don't know. And so that to me was a little bit debilitating. But at the same time, it's, I think one of the questions comes up is like, is cancel culture even real? And I'd say because people talk about it, we're engaging in the conversation, then yeah, it is. But I think the deeper underpinning of it is just, it's a grievance of uh, for so long that people haven't been able to hold people in power accountable. And I think we're just starting to see what happens when those two opposite sides of of a power spectrum start to meet in the middle. Yeah, I think a lot of what Kaplan talks about, too, that I think you're kind of referring to also, Emily, is the idea that like in a lot of these instances, there's not a heck of a lot of nuance around it. You know, it's like either you're a sexist, racist monster or you're a hero and we will put you on a pedestal until you make the slightest mistake and then it's game over for you. What did you think about it, Lee? I think cancel culture uh, is real, but I also think that in the discussion of it, there are a few distinctions that don't get made. It's a complicated thing, and I think we sometimes uh, we just dance around it because it's so uncomfortable and because we're all terrified of it. I also think it's a misnomer because, as many people have said, that the idea that somebody's really going to get canceled, like really going to lose their career, is mm-hmm. pretty rare. But to be honest, one of the things I found uncomfortable about her piece was that she's not taking the blog down. And the fact mm-hmm. is, even if she did, those posts exist and have been, you know, used to, you know, as as bludgeons against the deserving and the undeserving. And I don't think there was any real reckoning with that at all. Yeah, I I agree with Lee on that too. And I want to say like, when that article came out, I was surprised to see that she hadn't written on it for five years. Because it Mm. might like, it's just at the front of my mind still is something that is current, because you're right, the internet doesn't forget the internet also doesn't remember if you have moved on from something. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's obviously just super complicated. And I think there's a lot more gray area than we kind of allow ourselves to consider in a lot of these instances. So a couple of weeks ago on Nerdette, we talked about Framing Britney, which is the New York Times documentary about Britney Spears that came out. It seems to have sparked a lot of reflection, I think, especially when it comes to how the media treated teenage girls, especially 20 years ago. And how things have changed and how things haven't changed. Um, In the last couple of weeks, we've seen essays from people like Tavi Gevinson and Mara Wilson, who were both, you know, pretty famous teenagers. Um, They reflected on their experiences. We've also seen a number of articles kind of pointing out how terribly teen stars were treated, especially when you look at young women like Lindsay Lohan and Christina Aguilar and Jessica Simpson, women who were super famous kind of around the, the Britney era. Um, Lee, you said you've been reflecting on this too, right? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it was so hard to watch how defenseless Brittany was. Mm -hmm. You know, like you watch her and you can see her 
not having the language or the protection to negotiate the things that were being thrown at her. And I think that culturally that's something that has changed a lot. Like we have, we have given people language and, and, and discussion has changed. And so what is permissible has changed. Um, and to be clear, I still think that the world is full of gross people, but I think mm-hmm. that um, mainstream media is less likely to participate in that grossness and endorse it. So, Emily, what do you think? I know this has been something that's really been sticking with you, too. Yeah, I mean, I uh, as a, a young girl growing up during that era, um, I I have very vivid uh, memories of all of those things happening in real time. The interviews, the magazine covers. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the media that we had access to. There wasn't, the internet wasn't widely available and nobody had a cell phone or a smartphone. And so for me, you know, that was hitting in the middle of my adolescent and and periods of really informative growth. And to me, it was just um, being kind of a product of that culture. I was so uh, I guess, discouraged and full of a, a lack of hope about possibilities for myself when it came to things that I could see myself doing, like the ways in which women were successful were all directly tied to their sex appeal. And for me, you know, now I, I've given hundreds of presentations about the importance of uh, representation in the media, especially when we talk about science media or educational media. It's so important for young people to see themselves reflected in that. And now, 10 years later, after I've spent a decade doing that, now I see interesting conversations about, is representation that important? Because we have such a wider pool to draw from when it comes for, to role models for young people. So that to me is like, that's, bad, that's been an interesting reflection of, of growth in media that I didn't expect to see uh, myself when I was uh, the audience for those intended articles. I felt a lot of shame watching that documentary like because I remember too like I was older I was in college and I remember really sneering at Brittany and buying the narrative that media had put out about her and um and I think there was this tremendous desire at the time for me and I and I see this in the behavior that my friends and I engaged in the way we talked about other women the way we talked about ourselves like to be in on the joke right mm-hmm. like to to be in on the joke so you wouldn't be the butt of the joke and that was the fear. And I feel like maybe I'm projecting, but I feel like I see that in her interviews. And, and even, you know, the when they talked about Lindsay Lohan commenting on her own, like her own body before. Yeah, she brought it up. So it's fine. So it's fine. Except why did she bring it up? Because she was trying to show she's in on the joke. Right. You know? right. Like if you take the swing first, then they can't come at you. And, and you're one of the cool girls. Like, and, and you, and, and, and that is one of the most vicious things, right? Like, oh, why, you know, it's just a joke. We're just kidding around, you know, it's fair game. And you know, internalized misogyny is a hell of a drug. Like I look back on that and, mm-hmm. and I feel like I was old enough to know better, but, but I had also been drinking culture that was essentially poison. So I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a line in a Washington post story about this where a, a woman who wrote profiles for vanity fair back then talked about how essentially young Brittany, her, in, her independent desires were inextricable from her desire to please other people. And they talk about it in the framework of like, that was just a thing that was really hard for f- super famous teenage girls to do. But it really stuck with me because it's like, well, isn't that what we're all navigating? You know, like, isn't that the patriarchy in the end is like, do we get to talk about what we want or do we need to accommodate these other people in the room? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So on the much lighter side of things, uh, Seth Rogen, who I don't know, I guess I first saw in like Freaks and Geeks back in the day, but he's done a bunch of comedy (laughs) stuff, is the latest of many celebrities to dive into the legal marijuana business. Um, which I don't know, I mean, especially given the fact that he literally played a stoner in Freaks and Geeks, I don't think is particularly surprising. But I kind of wanted to ask each of you, like, is there an actress or actor or like just famous person who if you did see a headline that they were they were going to start growing pot, you'd just be like completely shocked? (laughs) No, no, I thought about this a lot. I thought about it a lot. And I was like, what the Pope? You know, like what if the Pope came out and was like, I like to smoke a little grass now and then, not even then, not even then, because I think so much of what we're fighting still is just stigma, you know? Yeah. So like you see the stigma starting to be shed with recreational marijuana legalization. Um, But yeah, I'm going to say a a hard, I'm not going to be surprised by anybody who (laughs) comes out. Not even the Pope. No, not even the Pope. I, I thought maybe like Helen Mirren. Oh, that would be fun. But then I was like, no, like I could see her with her beautiful English garden, you know, like, and and it would just be very sort of bucolic and the vicar would come by, you know, like, I don't like, no, I totally agree. I don't think, I don't think I'd be surprised by anybody saying so. Well, Lee Bardugo, Emily Grassley, thank you so much. It was really fun to chat with you about kind of all the things. Thank you for having me. This is great. We should do it again sometime. After the break, we're going to hear about Alberta King, Burtis Baldwin, and Louise Little, the mothers of three civil rights icons. Plus, Sherry Turkle joins us to talk about her new memoir, The Empathy Diaries. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. See, the building of a new nation begins with the woman because the mother is the first teacher of the child. It seems to me that uh, the only thing that the mother can do, the Negro mother, is to try from the beginning to instill in the child a sense of somebodiness. By the time I was 14, I knew I wanted to be a writer. My father was very opposed to it, very frightened by it, and that frightened me. My mother was frightened too, but my mother was another kind of person. She didn't try to stop me. Did you think he was going to be as as big a success and as important? No, no I didn't think that. But I knew that uh, he had to write. Odds are, even if you don't recognize those voices, you know the people who those voices belong to. We just heard from Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and James Baldwin talking about the importance of motherhood. 
But that last voice you heard probably is one that you do not recognize. It belonged to James's mother, Bertus Baldwin. James Baldwin, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr. are three of the most famous voices behind the civil rights movement. There are movies and books and documentaries about these men and their impact on America. But what about their mothers, the women who raised them? In each case, the mothers of these men instilled many of the values and motivations that made James and Malcolm and Martin so important. And a new book is about exactly those women, Bertus Baldwin, Louise Little, and Alberta King. It's called The Three Mothers, and it's by Anna Malika Tubbs, who's with us now. Anna, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Greta. It's my pleasure. So I think we should start with probably a very basic question, but I'm curious what made you decide to write about these women? Yeah, it was really such an incredible journey. I was incredibly inspired by Margot Lee Shetterly's Hidden Figures. And a lot of people probably haven't read the book, but have heard about the movie. Uh, But what she was able to uncover and really transform the way we thought about not only American history, but where we find ourselves in the country today through introducing us to these women who we all should have known about all along. And so I started my PhD knowing that I was going to join her and other Black feminist scholars who were bringing hidden figures into the light. And that left a lot of options open. Unfortunately, so many Black women's stories are forgotten, erased, Mm -hmm. hidden. But I chose these three women because Alberta King, Bertus Baldwin, and Louise Little were all born within six years of each other. Mm -hmm. And their famous sons were all born within five years of each other. So I could also talk about American history in each chapter, 10 years, so a decade of American history through their lives. And I just got really excited as soon as I made the decision and finally narrowed down my my three incredible women. Um, And the book really, I mean, it was a lot of work, but in other ways also wrote itself from there because they just lived such amazing lives. They did. I think about how I learned about these three men, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. and James Baldwin. And I I feel like I learned about them as sort of as being like extraordinary for their time, as being exceptions to the rule. Mm-hmm. But I feel like a lot of what you set up in this book is the idea that these men were part of generations of very intentional and important choices that in many cases their mothers made. Can you tell us a little bit about each of these mothers? Yeah, absolutely. And just to add to that, I mean, I think it's something that you really notice during MLK Junior Day that we celebrate every year, and it's to celebrate his birthday right around January 15th, um, as if he like popped out of nowhere on his own. <laughs> <laughs> so if we're celebrating his birthday, it's kind of strange. We've never thought about the other person who was in the room for that to happen. The person who actually worked really hard that day? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's just to add to yeah how kind of shocking it is. And yes, they are a part of something so much larger. So to start with Alberta King, MLK Junior's mother, She was born in Atlanta, Georgia. Her parents were the leaders of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And when they arrived at Ebenezer, there were only about 14 members of the congregation. And they transformed the church to be what it still is today. This incredible religious leader that says you cannot have faith without social justice, that those two go hand in hand. And so they were extremely active in their community. They participated in marches and boycotts. They were some of the first members of the NAACP, founding members of the Atlanta chapter. So Alberta is their only child and grows up going to all of these marches with them and participating in these meetings with them. And although they never use the word nonviolence, it's exactly the same tactics that 
their grandson and her son later will make famous around the world. So it's crucial to understanding MLK, but it's also just important to know Alberta in her own right was somebody who was changing the world around her through not only her activism, but she was also an incredible student. And she really just found ways to think differently about the world and bring more people into her into her life um, and into this kind of world-changing work that her parents taught her and that she would pass on to her own children. I think that speaks to another really lovely concept that you address in this book or a theme that comes up in this book, which is the idea that even if these women didn't get fancy degrees and weren't CEOs and fancy companies, their impact maybe isn't measurable by what often our kind of societal standards around success look like, but that they still had really beautiful, significant impact in really special and important ways. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, will you tell us about another mother? Definitely. So we'll go with Berta since she's next alphabetically by first name, not to make I love it. give any preference to any of the women. <laughs> uh, Berta Baldwin was born in Deal Island, Maryland, this kind of tiny town that was very difficult for me to find information on. Um, but she grew up One, first, she was born into a situation that was rather tragic. She lost her mother very early on. And in this tragic situation, Burtis is wrapped in love by her father and her older siblings. And she becomes someone who really focuses on how do you move past the pain, you know, even the hardest of circumstances? How do you find light and love no matter what? And she also becomes an incredible writer, And everyone who knew her said she had a brilliant mind and had power over language. And she would write letters to her loved ones, helping them through these harder times in their lives as well. Um, Another part of her childhood that's important is that she would have been pretty well aware of the freedom fighters that came out of Maryland as well. And Maryland has such a rich history of these freedom fighters. We have Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman herself, so that's also crucial to understanding Bertis Baldwin's experience and her ability to see beyond what her small town could offer her um, and to focus on larger dreams as well as helping other people through their own struggles. That's interesting. That kind of reminds me of something we did an interview recently about um, the first female doctor in America, wow. Elizabeth Blackwell. And, and, the the author of the book, Janice Nimura, talked about how one of the big lessons she drew from it was the importance of being able to picture things that don't exist. Yes, it's crucial. Yeah. It was crucial to all three of them. They were creators in so many ways. And I talk about how that creativity is a part of our survival as Black women, that you have to be able to picture something that currently isn't in existence. You know, if your whole country and all these systems are built against you saying you are less than or we're going to continue to treat you this way but you know that you are a human being who deserves rights and deserves to be treated with dignity then you really have no other choice but to force everybody around you to see it the way you do and especially Mm -hmm. with children it's something that's very politicizing for black mothers especially that You hold this child near and dear to you knowing how amazing they are, but again, knowing how they'll be seen differently. And you can't just accept that. Mm -hmm. So tell us about Louise Little, the mother of Malcolm X. 
Louise Little was born in Grenada, and her grandparents were really influential in her life. They were what are called liberated Africans, which means that at one point they were enslaved, and then um, at some point when maritime laws were changed, they were granted their freedom. And so they knew exactly what it was like to live in this enslaved state, but they also understood the importance of holding on to their freedom no matter what. So this is part of Louise's upbringing, that they teach her the lessons of the freedom fighters from their um, West African heritage, Nigerian heritage, very specifically. And she also learns from the indigenous people on her island, the Caribs and the Arawaks, who are also known for being revolutionary against European colonization and really professing that they would rather die than live as slaves or live an oppressed life, um, that they would rather risk their lives than to, to do the opposite. And so Louise grows up hearing these stories as well. She also receives an above average education. And with all of these kind of combined opportunities, she wants to join an international movement for Black lives because she's been taught about Black independence, Black pride, Black self-sufficiency from the moment she's born. And she finds this international movement through Marcus Garvey and his professing that we should not be assimilating into white culture, but instead should profess how beautiful um, Black people were in their own right. And she leaves Grenada at the age of 17 and joins this Marcus Garvey movement uh, in first in Montreal, Canada, and then later helps spread his message alongside her husband all throughout the United States. Mm -hmm. It's just so incredible. You kind of hinted at this, but I'm curious. I mean, part of the struggle with with bringing figures who have been relegated to the shadows into the light is that it's really difficult to even find information about them. Yeah. When you set out to research them, what did you have and what was missing? Where did you have to fill in the gaps? It was incredibly difficult, but I first started actually with the sons. They were my entry point because so much had been written about them. And so mm -hmm. I took from what they'd written or interviews they'd done or speeches they'd given. And I was able to kind of scan through and look for any appearance of their mom's names um, and any mention of them and start creating my master list of just details on each of the women. But I quickly realized that before they had the famous sons and before they got married, it was as if really history was telling me that they didn't matter up until this man entered their life. So the biggest gap was between this estimate of when they were born for two of the women were not even positive about the year. And then when they get married and then a little bit more about them when their sons are born. So that's really why I focus so much on their identity between birth and getting married, because I really wanted to emphasize how important they were even before these men entered their life. And that's where I spent so much of my time. I love how much sleuthing you had to do. I mean, it must have been, I could see it being really frustrating, but also so rewarding when you are able to kind of draw some of the, connect some of those dots. It was so cool. I mean, definitely frustrating on one hand, because there were some days where I didn't find anything and I'd spent hours kind of sifting through boxes or whatever. Um, and then other days when I did find something, I was so excited, but then again, equally frustrated that people didn't know this already. You know, at one point I found this paragraph uh, from one of James Baldwin's principals talking about how Burtis 
clearly was the source of where he inherited his writing talent from. And as beautiful as that was for me to find, I was so mad that we hadn't been giving her credit all along. You're like, it's, it was right here the whole time. Yeah, it's right here. She says it right oh, here. And it's the same as uh, Malcolm X. And there was a letter that he wrote to his brother when he's considering converting to um, Islam and joining the nation. And he says, mom is the first one to, who, have, who taught us this. She is the reason. And again, why hadn't anybody ever shared that? Why hadn't that letter ever been published? It was just sitting in a box somewhere. Right. You'd think the fact that Malcolm X literally said our mother is the reason we're thinking this way would, you know, like that's a headline right there. You would think so. You would think it would prompt someone to say that's really fascinating. Um, But there's something that we do in society where we think, eh, that's not that interesting. That must not really be that important. This mother is just doing what she's supposed to do as a mother. And we forget to highlight that. And you'll see throughout the book, um, for those who haven't read it yet, it's just constant proof that everybody around them knew how important they were, even if they didn't always maybe thank them to the degree that they should have. There was at least an awareness of their contributions that very strategically was erased over the years. Well, I'm glad you're at least, you know, doing your part to help kind of shift that and, and create a reversal of that, thank because you. I think it's really important. Thank and you. It was just such a beautiful book. I'm curious you know, I mean, you've you've cited the importance of your own mother. I'm sure there are a multitude of other women in your life who have impacted you and, and helped you become the, the activist and scholar that you are today. I'm curious, on a day when you are just feeling particularly exhausted and burnt <laughs> out, um, is there, like, is there an anecdote or an idea from one of the mothers in this book that that's something you might reach for on a day when you're just like, where where is the light at the end of this tunnel? Oh, I love that question. Gosh, you know, so it's interesting because no matter what I feel I've gone through thus far and understanding what those three saw throughout their lives, it's so, so small in comparison that I almost feel, you know, like when I think about the incredible things that they made it through and... Well, they all lost their sons. Exactly, exactly. And those are the parts that I have to distance myself from in a way, you know, because it just is so heartbreaking, but happens still to this day for so many black moms. And, but I take from their constant belief that they couldn't just accept these circumstances. And although they all have very different approaches to how they taught their children to stand up for their rights or join this larger freedom movement, They were similar in that they all made sure their children were aware of what was happening around them, but that they would not let that be what defined them. That they should know that in the country that they lived in, some people believed that we were less than and we're going to do whatever it took to make us feel that. But that awareness was more so to say, let's change that and we together can be part of this change. So I think it's just day in and day out their different approaches to constantly saying we are human and we believe that to be true and we are going to fight until we're treated that way. Absolutely. I just thought it was gorgeous. Thank you so much for writing it and thanks for taking the time to chat with me about it. Thank you so much for having me.
next guest has spent her career looking at how humanity is impacted by technology. Her name is Sherry Turkle. She works at MIT, and 10 years ago, she wrote a book called Alone Together, which was about how we spend too much time staring at our screens. Then in 2015, she wrote a book called Reclaiming Conversations, which was about reinforcing the importance of real-life human connection. Her newest book is a memoir. It's called The Empathy Diaries. And as you can imagine, a lot of it is about some of Sherry's incredible achievements. But it's also brutally honest about some of the hardships she faced along the way. Like there's a line from the book. It's pretty early on. It comes right after Sherry was accepted to Radcliffe. She wrote, when I considered what I had accomplished, I was ashamed of my achievement because I thought of how much my effort showed which I don't know about you, but that just kind of breaks my heart. And the book can be brutal, but it also makes for such a fascinating read, partly because I think you can see how much passion Sherry has for her younger self. What I had to do to get ready to write the book is to develop empathy for myself rather than just be critical of that younger self. That was my journey. For example, I was valedictorian of my high school. I was valedictorian of my junior high school because I was told by my guidance counselor that in order to get a scholarship to Radcliffe, to Harvard, where I wanted to go, I was told, well, you could maybe do that, but you have to be valedictorian of every school you go to. I was, I was in the Brooklyn public school system. So I did. I mean, I did. I got 100% on everything, but I did graduate from high school and got into Radcliffe and got there feeling that this wasn't right, that feeling of not it not being right. And I wanted to be honest to the feelings of the time so that my graduation from high school and all that triumph was not a time of feeling good about myself. But just like we heard in our last segment, Sherry told me she was able to persevere with the help of her community, people especially like her grandmother. I adored my grandmother, who was really my lifesaver and my, and my whole story. She is one of the heroes. She really is. There are these moments of just my family coming through for me. And in this story of a lot of, I think, a lot of troubles, there are heroes, heroines. One of the wonderful things I must say about writing this book is I can tell the story of the extraordinary people who stood behind me and helped me. On that note, I was really curious to hear how Sherry's relationship with technology has changed over the past year. I mean, sure, crucial human connections are great, but what if all you have is Zoom? Well, I think it's all very complicated. I mean, because look, thank God for Zoom. But I'm always reminded that to give my the person I'm talking to the experience of looking at me in the eye I have to stare at the green light on my machine, which means that I'm not looking at anything at all. This should not be the gold standard. This is not where empathy is born. This is better than nothing. It is not better than anything. We have to put the focus back on us, back on people and what people need and what people's first needs are. So coming out of the pandemic, I say we are now experts on what people need. 
we have been suffused with screens and what screens can do and what screens can give us. This has been what, what my great teacher, Victor Turner, he called these liminal moments, moments betwixt and between, moments out of time. He said, it was in, if you go through these moments of betwixt and between, you're, where things get shaken up, you're better able to then choose and see things afresh. Sherry Turkle, her new book is called The Empathy Diaries. All right, that's it for today. As I am sure you know, we're nearing the one-year anniversary of shutdowns across the U.S. because of COVID, and it's gotten me thinking. I think this is also kind of what Sherry's getting at, too. If there's anything that you've started doing over the last year during the pandemic that you kind of want to hold on to, that you want to make sure you keep doing when we get to the other side of this thing, we would love to know what you're thinking about. Send us a voicemail. You can do that by recording yourself on your phone, and then you email the file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. The show is produced by me and Isabel Carter, and our executive producer is Brendan Banasak. We'll see you next Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.